Colossians chapter 2, as we continue on in this series, we'll pick up in verse 6, and we will read through verse 15 this morning. Hear God's word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This sends the reading of God's holy and inerrant grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. I, this sermon part has, as we look at this text and seek to understand it, in some ways it has two parts, but in really it's, it's all connected. We're going to look at this morning in verses, is verses 6 and 7 and how it's juxtaposed against or versus verse 8. The outline of this text is, is this, is that verse 6 and 7 is that Paul calls us in the way in which we're to live out the Christian life. And then in verse 8, he warns us about a way in which we move away from the central things of the Christian faith. The, a, a significant theme that Paul has in this book and calling us in what he he's in, in, particularly in chapter 1, he, he's consistently saying, I, I, I'm praying for you or I want for you. And he wants for them to, to know the power of God, to have an understanding of the knowledge and wisdom of God, to have joy in their walk with the Lord, to have hope. In other words, what Paul wants for the people of Colossae is that as they understand how great God is in Jesus Christ, and they understand how great the gospel is as, it's, as Jesus Christ is at work in their hearts, that they would then have the fullness of the Christian experience, which is joy and hope and this knowledge. He wants them to have a great Christian life. And you want to have a great life too, don't you? And what Paul is addressing here is that in this desire that he has for us and that we have for ourselves, which is this full and wonderful and great Christian life, that there is this temptation, though, to move away from the central things, the things that will actually give us joy and power and hope, and instead add to Jesus Christ all these other things in the hopes of having what we would deem to be the great Christian life or simply just the great life in general. And what he does and what he shows that here is he juxtaposes verses 6 and 7 to verses 8. Pick up in verse 6 and 7. We're just going to walk through that for just a moment. Verse 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It begins there, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. How did you receive Christ Jesus? 
How do you become a Christian? What is the activity that happens? Is you repent and you believe. And this is the entirety of the Christian life. It is the same from day one to day, thousand and one. The Christian life is daily repentance and belief. Repentance is this, is it's turning away from anything and everything that you would add to Jesus. Anything and everything that you would put your trust in, in addition to Christ. And you're saying, I'm putting that aside. And I'm putting my faith and trust completely in him. So repentance and faith go directly together. Repentance is turning away from anything that you're trusting in. And faith is saying, I'm putting my faith centrally and fully and completely in the work of Christ Jesus. Repentance and belief. And what you do each and every day in your devotional time as you're walking through your life is, Lord, I am tempted to long as I go out the door today that success at work would be the means by which I see myself having the great life. That when you're driving home from work and you say, I, I would see the great life as being able to just to, to sit back and be comfortable. And if my children would obey and my wife would just be the perfect wife, then my life, my Christian life, my life in general would be awesome. These are the lies and the things that we would add to faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And so we would say, Lord, help me to remove anything and everything in my life that is in addition to you. And may I look to Christ and Christ alone. He goes on to talk about this and describe what this looks like that we would walk on or continue on. This is a significant theme that runs throughout the New Testament, particularly that Paul is constantly pushing. He describes the Christian life as a Christian walk and that you continue on in the path that you started on, which is repentance and belief. And then he says this, rooted and built up in him, in Christ Jesus. Rooted and built up. Actually, the grammar there is, as you have already been rooted, now you are built up or you grow. This is kind of an allusion to perhaps John 15. John 15, you have this image known as the vine and the branches, where it describes the Christian life, that Jesus is the vine, and we were branches that were off to the side, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been engrafted into the branch that is Christ. And so if you are the branch and Christ is the vine, as a Christian, you are consistently finding your growth, your maturity, growth in the ability to do what is right and bearing fruit and strength and power and joy, not by separating yourself and finding something besides Christ, but by rooting yourself all the more deeply into who Christ is and what he has done for you. And finally, another image, established in the faith. This is a legal image. So it's interesting, we have received and walk. That's one image. Then we have rooted and built up, which is both a horticultural and then a architectural terms. And then now we get the established in the faith, which actually, oddly enough, is a legal term. It's talking about established, that you would establish witness and testimony upon some facts, clear and documented, legally grounded in something. And what it's referring to here is that you would be rooted and grounded in, once again, established, documented, that your life would be in the faith. Now, what it's not saying there is it's not established in our faith. Did you notice that? Again, it is you're not established in how strong your faith is. That's, being, that's establishing your faith in nothing. That's circular. I'm going to have faith in my faith. No, you have faith in the object of your faith. Rooted and established in the faith. And whenever you see that definite article, the faith, it's referring back again to the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. So three times, essentially, it says it. Paul repeats how the Christian life is to look like. 
Just as you began, you carry on. Just as you're rooted, you're built up. And just as you're established in this clear documented fact of what Christ Jesus has done for you, put your faith in. So that's what Paul is saying. That's how you live the Christian life. That's how you change. That's how you're sanctified. That's how all those sins in your life are going to be ultimately uh, eradicated and changed. You become a beautiful and wonderful person is that you continually go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, repenting and believing. That's the call here. Now, the other side of it, though, is the temptation, and we talked about in verse 8, is that we would possibly be turned aside away from the centrality of Christ and the true nature of the gospel and be deceived by what he calls philosophy and empty deceits. Verse 8, pick it up there. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I actually have on your outline this morning, this is the sense of where this is beginning. This is the juxtaposition. You're either living according to Christ, in line with who Christ is and what he has done for you, or you're not living according to Christ. You've taken on something else. You're not living according to Christ, which means either you have rejected him entirely in your life or have never received him, or you're trying to add something to him, seeing that he is not sufficient for change and growth to give you the fullness of joy and hope and power in this life. Or you simply, you're looking to something else. But that is what it is, to walk not according to Christ Jesus. And then it describes and says that this, this human tradition is according to the elemental spirits. We're working our way back up from not according to Christ, now the elemental spirits. Now, what are these elemental spirits? We're just going to take a second on this because I actually don't think it's that important in understanding what Paul is saying here. There's a lot of different understandings from commentators as to what in the world this elemental spirits thing is. Entirely sure put it that way. But what he, is, he is playing on the words of the false teachers that have sought to infiltrate the Colossian church. Like to us, this word in elemental spirits makes the Bible sound weird. Well, the Bible isn't trying to sound weird. Paul is trying to address the false religion invade the church there, there in Colossae. And what I think that the best understanding I have of this text is that Paul is talking about here what these elemental spirits are. It is talking about these angels that have control over what would be considered the elemental spirits of that. In early Greek philosophy, is there was the most base understanding of the world. And early philosophies were based around fire, water, earth, and matter. And they're part of this religion that was seen to be infiltrating the church in Colossae is their belief that there are certain angels that have control over each of these elements. And the the thought process is, at least as we understand it, is that these people are infiltrating the church and saying, yes, yes, Jesus is really, really great. But if you want to have the fullness of life, of power and joy and hope, then you've got to understand these angels and how they control these different elements, these base elements of the world. Another side of it could be that there's, it's not good angels, but it's actually fallen angels, demons that are actually going on here. That if you, in order to, to protect yourself and, and live a good Christian life is you've got to protect yourself from these fallen demonic angels who would then use these elemental things, earth, matter, fire, water, and, and against you. So this is kind of mixing uh, Greek philosophies in with the create a syncretistic religion, and Paul 
push that aside. Now we get to the third way he describes the philosophy and empty deceit that is... By the way, philosophy is not the problem, right? So anybody who is a philosophy major, it's okay for you to be a philosophy major. Philosophy is right, is right thinking or right ordering or thinking and communicating in a way that calls people to think rightly as the way the world is supposed to be understood, right? And you can have correct philosophy and you can have deceitful philosophy. Apparently what these teachers were doing were coming in and using big words and great arguments that dissuaded people from the centrality of Christ and were seeking to add to them to Christ with these other things that they need to believe. And this philosophy is built upon, it's not according to Christ, it's built upon these elemental spirit teachings, but then primarily what this philosophy is built on is human tradition. Human tradition. This is the tradition of men, and the particular and significant thing that you would see there is it's the tradition of men, not the tradition of the word is they have separated themselves and they are adding to the teaching of God's word with all of these other religions or all these other traditions that are trying to insert and connect it to Christianity. You understand what he's saying here to these people? He's saying, well, you can understand, that's what these people are saying, is you can understand the scriptures, but you need to have these other traditions that you add to them in order to have the fullness of the Christian life. And Paul is saying that is bunk. That is bunk. And the issue for us, often as we understand this and look at this, is, is, is we try to understand and apply this teaching. And what's going on here, as Paul warns the church in Colossae, is what traditions of men are you adding to your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Or what do you have, what traditions of men do you trust in that are the worldview of your life that completely replace Christ in Christ alone? I can think of some, we'll use some big words, relativistic Freudianism. The sense that everything is relative and therefore you live your life any way you so choose. That for you, the tradition, this may be the type of household that you grew up in, where your parents just said, what matters most, honey, is that you're happy. And whatever makes you happy, that's a tradition. That is a worldview and a perspective that your family in this world is giving you and saying you live out of this perspective that whatever makes you happy, whatever you feel like doing, then that is what's right, then that is what's good. Perhaps a little bit more subversive for us would be the American dream tradition. What's the American dream tradition? The American dream tradition would be this thing to say, Jesus is really great and you should go to church and you should live a good moral life. But man, what you have to add, if you really want to live the good life, then you work really, really hard and you save really, really good. And from the time you're 65, you can live it up. That's the American dream. It's rugged libertarian individualism is what it is. And it is adding to the Christian faith. That the high point of the Christian life is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Speaking of healthy, wealthy, and wise, that brings us to the verse of tradition that we add to Christ Jesus. And there's all these things within the church that are good things, that are gifts of God, that are results of the gospel. Some of these are things that we love because they help us understand and love Jesus better. But often, often because the The devil is so subversive and we are tempted in so many ways. And because we are such weak people, we take the gifts and we make them central. We take the means to get Christ and we make the means central. Let me 
walk through a few of these, that if you just had these, you would have the fullness of life instead of taking your eyes fully and completely on Christ. One would be if my circumstances would just change. If I could just change my circumstances, if my children would just learn to obey, then my life, I would be able to... If my children would just sleep, I would experience God on a whole deeper level. Can I get an amen from the parents who don't get to sleep? If my wife and my spouse, my husband, would just do what I want them to do. Lord, if you would just give me a spouse, then I would experience you at a deeper level. If my circumstances would change, then I can get... Now, listen in your life and you need to change your circumstances and by doing so, you're, you get to experience Christ better. But we don't look to those things as the central aspect of the thing that gives us the fullness of life. We already have Christ. Second thing we may look to is our behaviors. If I can just root this life and then I, then I will experience the joy and the hope and the power of the Christian life. Now, is that true? In some ways, Yes. If you're someone who week in and week out is watching and looking at things on the internet that you should not be looking at, that is destroying your walk with Jesus. But your walk with Jesus, your relationship with him is not destroyed by the fact that you sin. He walks with you, he never leaves you or nor forsakes you, but the belief is often is that if you would just behave in a certain way, then I can truly have the great Christian life. It takes a, a, a wonderful thing, which is God calls us to obedience, and it twists it and it subverts it to where it makes us experience Christ if only we will obey. It makes Jesus the cookie. But the centrality of the Christian life is our obedience. And our life becomes about right behaviors, about formalism, about looking the right way as a Christian. It becomes about obeying more than actually experiencing Jesus. It becomes about the next spiritual high. That if I can just have that worship experience, then I'll have you live in the great Christian life. There's activism often. You can, if, I, if you will just, if I can just get myself or I'm engaged in this, this particular activity in the Christian life or I'm, I'm doing evangelism, then, then I will be experiencing Christ Jesus at the highest level. Biblicism is another thing we add. If I can just know the Bible so well, left and right, if I can know theology, then, then Christian life will be as it's supposed to be. All these things, they're great. They're gifts. They're things that we should love. But if they subvert us, if they distract us from the centrality of Christ, then they've actually replaced him. Often another one is that we, we just think if our thinking would be changed. Is the belief that if we just were educated enough Outside the church, it just is this belief that education is going to save our society. If, if our country would be, we would fulfill our great, all that we can possibly be if we could just get every child educated, right? Isn't that the message of every politician? Education is wonderful and beautiful and great, right? And as a Christian, often if we could just, if we could just think rightly, then everything, then we would experience Christ perfectly. And now the thing is, the scriptures call us to think rightly, right? Set your minds on things above. So thinking matters. But often when we make thinking the most important thing, we actually distill Christ as being the things, or just simply, just our thoughts. If I just think the right thoughts about Jesus, then everything will be okay. Then I'll have the full Christian life. This is the kind of stuff that's espoused by someone like Joyce Myers. And I push in Joyce Myers because so many of you read her books. 
Myers. Here's some of her books, just some of the names of her books. Power Thoughts. Here's the subtitle. 12 Specific Thoughts to Possibly Affect Every Area of Your Life. You can hear the promise in there. If you'll just think these 12 things, your life will be great. Another book, The Mind Connection, The Life You've Always Wanted, is one of the chapters. Positive self-talk. What this is, is it's taking therapeutic psychologism and it's applying it to the Christian life that if you'll just think these sweet thoughts, chicken soup for the soul, then everything will be great. Your mind matters. You need to think on right things. But boiling the Christian life down to a few right little isms and truisms that you run in your head is not the center of the Christian life. It is Christ. All these things are attractive. But are they leading you to Christ? If they're not leading you to Christ and Christ alone to lean on him, then they're right now they're simply a distraction and they're telling you lies. What was it in your house growing up? What was the tradition that, you, that was espoused? It may have not have been overtly stated that the American dream is, is, will give you the full Christian life or great life in this world, but it may have been lived out in front of you. It may have been modeled that if you'll just work 60 hours a week and live this way, then, then you'll have the great life. We do this all the time in all various ways. We take various traditions of men and we add them to the Christian life, or frankly, we just replace the Christian life with them. Well, the call of Paul in these verses is to say this in verses 6 and 7. is to say that Christ is enough. That Christ is the central. We need to act to him every single day. That all these other things, if we're going to have them, if right thoughts is to say, I want to think rightly because I want to know Jesus better. That I want, to, I want to obey Christ today. Why? Because I want to experience Christ Jesus more fully. I want to have a great worship experience. I want to go to a great concert. Why? Not for the emotional and feeling rush, but because I want to know Christ Jesus. That's what he's after here. There's a, my, my kids went and saw the Peanuts movie yesterday with their papa. And, um, and so it made me think about Peanuts a little bit. My dad had the entire collection of Peanuts cartoons, and they were stored in my, in my closet as a kid. And so I read all of the Peanuts cartoons growing up. They're great. Some great philosophy espoused in Peanuts. But one of the great cartoons is there's one where Lucy, who has like this perpetual um, uh, crush on Schroeder, right? Schroeder's the brooding philosophical musician. Schroeder's genius. He's quiet, but he just plays his music. He's kind of like Ed, except for the quiet parts. And, 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 and so Schroeder one day is playing, is playing Brahms. He's listening to Brahms music. And so Lucy walks in the room and she goes, why are you listening to this? Are you, are you going to dance to the music? He says, no, I'm just going to listen to it. She says, well, are you going to march around the room and stomp around as you, to the beat of the music? He's like, no, I'm just going to listen to it. She asks again, are you going, to, are you going to, to whistle and sing to the music? And he says, no, I'm just going to listen to it. What is Schroeder saying there? That Brahms is enough. He doesn't need to dance. He doesn't need to sing. He doesn't need to whistle. And that's the point of this passage. Listen, we have all kinds of ways in which we can get to Christ, but in the end, Christ himself is enough. So Paul gives us five reasons tonight, this morning, why Christ is enough. And many of these things you're going to have already heard in Colossians, because Paul's being rather repetitive in this book. Five ways, though. Let's dive into it. First, and this is the umbrella for all the rest of them, the first reason why Christ is enough is because in Christ, the fullness of God dwells in us. Verse 9. 
For in him, speaking of Christ, the fullness of deity, so all of God is in him, dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. This is, from going back to the first week we started with the Colossians, this gets to the central heart of the book. All that stuff in chapter 1, in verses 15 to 23, talks about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, is to get to the point of the book, which is this. This incredible Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, everything is for him, he's the one who reconciles you, he lives inside of you. And that ought to blow your brain. In fact, he's going to go back to it again in chapter 3. That we are in Christ, and he, we are, he is in us, and we are in him. It says in chapter 3 that we are hidden in Christ Jesus. And what Paul wants us to see and why he begins with this great supremacy of Christ in chapter 1 is to blow our minds with the truth, the idea that God would live inside of us. That this one who is the most powerful being of the world, the one who would lay down his life for us, has come to indwell us. This is crazy. But with the false teaching, it appears, what they're wanting to say is that God and experience God by doing all of these things. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The fullness of God lives inside of you. You don't have to do anything else. He's there already. Or if you want to experience God, the great Christian life, and you have to do this, we say, no, no, no. It's already there for you. The truth is that in the Gospels, the supreme, sufficient creator and savior of the world has come to live inside of us, and we can experience that. That's the ultimate experience of the Christian life. Why would you satisfy yourself with some other kind of Christian experience? Why settle for something less? It's like settling for spam over it makes no sense when you put it this way. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the umbrella term, that Christ would live inside of us. Now, here I need to dive into a pretty thick um, theological issue called the union with Christ. And actually, I think next week we're going to dive into this. We're going to take a break from Colossians and do a primer on union with Christ, since Paul has introduced it. But just to begin us here, notice he says this, for in him... In him, it's constantly in verses 9 through 15, I think seven times, it uses the phrase either, phrase either in him or with him. And this is a concept that runs throughout the New Testament, that we are in Christ Jesus and he is in us. And that's weird to us. There are three union places in the scriptures that are the greatest mysteries. The union of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that they're one. The union of the nature of Christ, that God, fully God, and fully man have been united together. And then the union between God and us. And all three of them are a mystery. But understanding the union with Christ is to jump into the sea of all the privileges and benefits that are ours in him. And therefore, to understand it, we'll look at it more fully next week. But when it says here that we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that when, the, when this Holy Spirit invades your life... He brings Christ Jesus into your heart, and then he, by faith, brings you into Christ Jesus. and unites us with him, and when you're united to Jesus, you get all the benefits that he has earned. Take the illustration of a married person. This is actually one of the images used in the scriptures to describe our unity. That if you are, let's say you're a poor boy, but a wealthy baron. That, no one, that, sorry, that's not very contextualized, is it? A superstar movie actress falls in love with you. What's the movie? Notting Hill. This is a great movie. This is the whole theme of Notting Hill. So Notting Hill, that's just a movie actress. Are you laughing at me or with me? What's going on here? Uh, 
And Notting Hill, it's a movie actress. She is rich, she is beautiful, she is powerful, and she falls in love with a bookstore owner. If he marries her, what does he get? Suddenly he is rich. Suddenly he is on the front of the papers. He is famous. And he is probably considered beautiful. This is the same with us. When you are united to Christ, you get what he gets. Now, we're going to keep going on to the other points, but they are all flowing out of this first one. So the second thing that we get, Christ is enough because in him, in Christ, there is death. Oh, that sounds lovely. Verse, verse 11. In him, you also were circumcised. <laughs> Even better image, right? I'll take death, please. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And down to 13, and you who were dead and the uncircumcision of your flesh, dot, dot, dot. He's talking about circumcision here. That's weird. In Christ, what his point here is there is a true circumcision. True circum- or circumcision was the removing, if you don't know this, is removal of the force organ of males. And the reason why Paul is using circumcision image is that it appears that actually part of this false teaching is they are saying that you, in order to have the full Christian experience or simply to be considered a Christian at all, you need to be circumcised, men. That's what they're saying. But Paul is saying, I'm going to go one further than you. And in fact, you can scrap that whole physical circumcision thing. Is You don't even need it. What you need is spiritual circumcision. But that's what you need. And spiritual circumcision cannot happen with a knife or by hands. It must happen supernaturally by the power of God. What he's saying is that in Christ, we have all the circumcision we need. You don't need to be cutting off anything else. Praise the Lord. Now, what does the spirit, spirit, supernatural circumcision remove? It says it there. Put it off the flesh. Now, that's, I was really annoyed with Paul this week. Now, that's annoying. We're talking about spiritual things all of a sudden, and then he uses the word flesh. So what are we talking about here, Paul? Now, what he's referring to in regards to flesh is he's talking about the old self. In Colossians 3, verse 9, it says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, same language, put off the old self with its practices. What the flesh is, and what it's it's referred off in the scriptures, is not talking about your physical fleshly body, but it's talking about the sinful desires of your fleshly body. That you would desire the things that are opposite, your longings and desires for things that are against God. And so what your flesh refers to is that your attitude and your heart that completely separates you from him and makes you want to long for anything but God's. And so this flesh that has this gear towards rebellion against God is what has to be removed. It's what has to be done away with. Now, physical circumcision and what they're espousing is, these false teachers is, it's this physical circumcision. It's a part of keeping the law is what it represents. That if you will do this, then you will be changed. But we see the, the whole theme of the Old Testament is the law can't change your hearts. And being circumcised physically doesn't change your hearts either. In fact, it says in verse 13 that because we had uncircumcised hearts, that we are dead in our trespasses. But what we try to do with our law-keeping, with all the other things that we add to Christianity, is we try to prop dead people up and make them look alive. I heard a story from a seminary friend who was, of course, from Alabama. And, and, and he said at his grandfather's funeral, his grandfather's sitting there in the casket. And the family's all gathered around. 
And they're sitting around talking, and they realize that many of the grandkids, there's never been a whole family picture with all the grandkids with grandfather, but now he's dead. This is Alabama. So they pick him up out of the casket, they take his body out, and they prop him up next to a tree, and they take a family picture with grandfather. Weekend at Bernie's funeral edition. This is what law keeping is. It is picking up, you think this is graph. It says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. This is what we do. We pick up our dead spiritual selves, we tack off some law keeping to it, and we go, isn't it a lovely family picture? If we can just be circumcised, if we can just keep the law, whatever it may be, but in Christ, something supernatural has to happen. We must be made alive from our deadness. We need new hearts. And this is why it says that we need to have our hearts circumcised. We need our hearts, in other words, cut out entirely. Our fleshy, uncircumcised hearts need to be replaced with something new. In fact, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament that Jesus, that God promises to do this. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which, by the way, Deuteronomy is the giving of the law. So he says, the law, this is great. And then he goes on to say, you're not going to be able to keep it. And so in verse 6, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What is what has to happen in order for us to live? In order for us to actually truly keep the laws, we must get new hearts. But as it says, it says that God is going to do the circumcision within. How does that happen? How does he cut out our old selves, our old hearts? Verse 11, by, it's the key preposition, by. This is the activity, by what? The circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. By the way, buried there is not referring to uh, him being buried. I'm not sure why people can't understand this. Being buried gives you no, no kind of practical spiritual help. It's a euphemism for death. The only people who are buried are dead people. So buried, having been buried with him in baptism by the circumcision of Christ. Let's go back for a minute and think about circumcision again. I'm sorry. We don't like to think about circumcision, and we don't understand why God would have established this as the sign of the covenant for the people of God. He could have chosen any number of things, don't you think? Hey, get your hair cut a certain way, or get a cool tattoo. But no, he had to choose this. Why circumcision? What actually, verse chapter 17 of Genesis 17, where he inserts circumcision as the sign, or is it Genesis 16, as the sign of the covenant. It follows what happens in Genesis 15, where God establishes his covenantal relationship with Abraham, and something bizarre happens in that chapter as well. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be your, your father, and you're going to be my people, I'm going to bless you, and for this covenant, you're going to take a bunch of animals, and you're going to split them down the middle and create a bloody mess, and we're going to walk through it together. But only God walks through it. Now, that's called a maledictory oath. And what you're saying is, if I don't keep my end of the promise of this covenant, may what happens to me happen to, what happens to these animals happen to me. Now, God didn't just end there. In the sign of the covenant with circumcision, he gave us a perpetual reminder of the fact that the cutting off of the male sexual, the ending of life, you've cut off the thing that gives the next generation life. And it's a perpetual reminder that what may happen, what happens to your sexual organ happen to you if you violate this covenant with me. 
But if you remember in chapter 15, it was God who walked through the animal pieces. And so we come to the New Testament, and it calls Christ, it's the circumcision of Christ. You see, we had hard hearts. We had uncircumcised hearts. And it didn't matter if we had this outward sign. We needed the Holy Spirit to do something. We need our old selves taken out. We need to be given new selves. And the way in which he does that is Jesus takes the curse that our circumcision was always reminding us of. I want you to get the graphicness of this. The New Testament is calling Jesus a spiritual phallic symbol. That he is cut off from this world. 53. This is what it talks about. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Isaiah 53, it says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It goes on to say, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Circumcision literally means to be cut off. Christ was cut off. He was the true circumcision. Now, was he messy? Was he a gross part of the male sexual organ? Absolutely not. What did he take to the cross with him? He took all the activity of our sinful life and he took our old selves, our uncircumcised hearts, he took it upon himself, became gross to be cut off on our behalf. Romans 6, 6 and 7, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I understand we've been all over the place with the circumcision thing. Here's what he's saying. Christians, you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ on the cross. Your old self was cut. It was done away with through the circumcision of Christ on the cross. When he was cut off, your old self was cut off and you were put to death. That's what he's saying. And it means this, that you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to add anything else to Christ to try to cut out that old man. He's been cut out. If you are in Christ Jesus, that old self is gone. All right. So in Christ, we have death. Then there's the opposite side of it. Part three, point three. This is enough because in him there is life. There is new life. Verse 12, it continues. Having been buried with him in baptism, we also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. It describes us as dead in our trespasses. We were dead, but now we have been made alive. In our union with Christ, because we were connected to him, powerful work of the Holy Spirit, when Christ died, you died. But when Christ was raised, you were raised. And when you're connected to him by faith in this life, you begin to experience this new life. And that is the testimony of so many of you. That you saw that over the course of your life, this old person, who you, the, the addictions that you could not break by yourself, that old man has been destroyed, and you're beginning to see a new life begin to take hold in your life. 
Story of, I heard a story of a, of a man who was a drunkard and a drug. Isn't this classic? He becomes a believer and begins to push away from that old life. But like many of his friends, he had tried this many times before. And he goes back to his friends and he's conversing with them. And he says, no, my life has changed because I've trusted in Christ Jesus. And they question him. They go, are you serious? Really? And they, and they start asking about things in the Bible. And they're like, you really believe in this Jesus guy? I mean, you're a drunk. Don't you like the story about Jesus turning the water into wine? That didn't really happen. And he goes, oh, I, I don't know about that. I don't know if Jesus really could have turned water into wine. But all I know is this, is he's turned beer into furniture in my house. When you are raised to life, when the Spirit of God is now active in your life, it changes everything. You have a new identity. You have new purpose. You have the life-giving power of Christ's work, and that's all you need. So Christ is enough because he's given us a new life. Fourth, Christ is enough because in him there is debt forgiveness. End of verse 13 and into verse 14. Having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The image here is the image that maybe you experience, and it's a powerful image, and it's a good image, and I'm glad youth groups do this. You experience a church camp or youth group where they stuck a cross at the front of the stage and they say, write down your sins and come and put them on the cross. That is the exact image that's being given here. You see, when people were crucified in that day, they would have the placard listing their sins and the reasons why they were being crucified up there. Why was Jesus crucified? This happened to him as well, right? Jesus, King of the Jews. What he did is he took all of your trespasses, all of your sins, and it's as if we went up there and we wrote them on the cross. They were ri- it, can you imagine all of your sins being written on the cross? It'd be tiny little font, wouldn't it? That's what he did. He nailed your sins to the cross. But then in Isaiah 43, 25, it says this, that he blots out our transgressions. This is what he has done. He's taken your sins on himself, and he has nailed them to the cross so that you were washed clean. There is forgiveness in him. Some of you are constantly trying to nail yourself to the cross. The reason why you're not in the Christian life is because you're trying to do the thing that only Jesus could do for you. You're hurting yourself every time you violate God's law. Instead of going, Lord, you've taken this sin and you've washed it clean on the cross. It was there on that day. It was for me. Fifth. In Christ, there is triumph over all powers. Christ is enough because he triumphs over all powers. And therefore, you know what that means? In him, we triumph over all powers. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Last verse, he had to say it one more time, in him. Rulers and authorities, what this refers to is the demonic forces, all the evil powers that are at work in this world. The evil that you see visibly and physically in this world, you can be sure that there are evil spiritual forces going on behind it. One pastor put it, referred to these rulers and authorities, I thought this was so great, as terrorists from hell. Terrorists from hell, making their mark in this world, and this is what they're doing. God has defeated, though, these rulers and authorities. He has triumphed over all forces of evil. How did he do this? You know, it said they armed them. He took away their ammunition. 
And actually what it says there, literally what that Greek word is for disarmed, literally means to disrobe. He made them naked. He exposed them, took away their weapons, took away their clothes, took away, he exposed all the evil forces of this world as what they are, as powerless in his sight. Now, how did he do that, though? By being disrobed himself. Jesus was made naked on the cross. He was made to appear weak and shameful. It says there that he's going to open them up to shame, triumphing over, putting them to open shame. The way he brings them to open shame is by putting to open shame himself. And through the apparent defeat of the cross, Christ has ended sin. He has taken all the ammunition of the devil and his minions so that now he rules over them and us in him do not have to fear. What is being said here is that God, by the work of Christ on the cross, has defeated all the demonic, demonic terrorists in this world. You and I have nothing to fear. And he puts them to open shame. Paul is lending, pulling from an image of Roman victors. It's when warriors would go out and great captains and they would defeat a, 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 an enemy army. And they would take the spoils that they would march back into Rome and they would have all the spoils behind them at the They would have the enemy king naked so that everybody could make fun of him. That's the image that's being brought up here. That you could taunt this once great man who has now fallen before them. So we're not saying that he doesn't exist. The enemy king, as he walks through the city, can spew nasty things at you. Can you imagine if you're living this Christ? You are enslaved to this king, but now Christ has come in, and you live in this city, and he has taken your slavery away, and he has defeated the king, and now instead of going back to Rome, he's, he's walking through your city where you were once enslaved by this king. And he's saying, listen, I've tr- look, he's naked, and he's ashamed, and I've triumphed over him. Look at the power of my great might. But he's walking through, and he's slandering us, and he's trying to tell us what to do. The Christian life, often, when we, why we struggle with sin, is we so listen to the lies of the one who has been caged up. Now, he has powerful because he can deceive, but he is defeated. He has no real authority over you. You no longer have to listen to his commands in your life. And that is the point of this, is that when the devil comes to tempt you, listen anymore that before in your old self when you had that other heart you could do nothing but his desires but now you've been set free and so we can sing hymns like a mighty fortress is our god here's the great fourth verse of that of that hymn and we'll come to a close and though this world with devils fields should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Is Christ enough for all this world? The answer is yes from Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this encyclopedic look at the sufficiency of Christ this morning. Of one for us. Lord, I thank you that we're running away from you that we were harlots and we were enemies and we were a people who were adamantly rejecting you. Everything was against you, that, Lord, you pursued us. You captured us. You set us free. You gave us new hearts and a new life. And now you're empowering us by your spirit to live into the victory that you have already given us. 
So, Lord, I pray that as these folks go out and they face the challenges of their life, that, Lord, they would take these truths and they would apply them to themselves. That, Lord, when they sin, that, Lord, they would not look to their own sufficiency and their law-keeping, but they would then go to the law-keeping of Christ Jesus. When they fear the temptation and they wonder, can I resist this? The answer is yes, because Christ has been victorious. He has given me a new heart. If they want to know who they are, they would look to the truth that they are in Christ Jesus and they are, we are your, your, your beloveds and you live inside of us. Lord, I pray that these truths would radically change our life, that it would change everything about who we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.